Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Thank you for joining us online for Sunday Church here at Lakeshore. Boy, we haven't done this in quite a while, but I'm so appreciative of those of you, no matter what campus you normally attend, that you would join us and roll with us on this occasion. And let me encourage you, jump into us in prayer for those people that are experiencing COVID or maybe on vacation for safety in their travels or if they're in graduations or any of the other things uh, during this particular season that uh, created this necessity for us to have an online service. We just really appreciate you being with us. We're going to pray and believe God together, and we're looking forward to being back in all of our in-person services next week. If you bought a Bible today, want to jump right to the lesson, and you're going to want to open up to three different passages. First, we're going to look briefly at John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and then we're going to find our way to Hebrews chapter 6, and eventually we'll get to Romans chapter 5. We're continuing today in a series called So Loved. It's really part of a larger series of studies that we're looking at called Three Essential Things, things that will safeguard our life, uh, foundations in the Word of God that will give us something firm to stand on, give us something consistent and solid uh, for us to live our lives by it when the whole world is shaking and the whole world is, is teetering and tottering and going into chaos. We don't have to live that way because God has provided something more steadfast for us. So we've been on this topic of so loved and we looked at John 3.16 last week talking about that it really has four pillars that explains the gospel in one power-packed verse. And so I want us to read it. In fact, let's just read it together. We're all over the place online, but we can be together in our spirit as we read together. The scripture should be there on the bottom of your screen. Let's read this together. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Again, in verse 16, four pillars of the gospel that will frame in for us not only God's plan for salvation, but really God's plan for ongoing growth and maturation or maturing in, in spiritual life. And here's what they are. Number one, God so loved everyone, the whole world, not just Christians. He so loved everyone that he wanted to rescue people, and so he sent, he gave his only begotten son, the most precious gift he had, and, and, and here's what he requires. If you'll just believe that or accept that, then the Bible says that you will receive eternal, or other translations say everlasting life. A life flow begins to, begins to spring up. It's divine. It's supernatural. It, it gives us access to God. And that begins to spring up in us right now while we're here on earth, helping us, strengthening us, leading us, guiding us, healing us, encouraging us, all the way until we get to heaven where it fully kicks in and we'll live forever and forever with God. Well, that's important that you understand that because, again, verse 17 then adds to it and says, it was never God's intention to condemn the world. Instead, from the very beginning, God has poured his love out on his creation, and after sin came in the world, God's been doing everything he can to provide a way for mankind to be rescued, to be restored, to be refreshed, to be redeemed, and that includes everyone, and it's important whether you've accepted Jesus or especially if you have accepted Jesus, it's important that you understand that includes you as well. And so again, we're continuing this study of God so loved, not just loved, you know, that we, we just say it and it kind of runs flat, but God so loved. And, and we'll, we're going to understand today that uh, while God's not mad at anybody, he didn't come to condemn the world. Listen, God doesn't overlook sin. 
Sin is a very serious and a very separating matter to God. And so God doesn't overlook sin, but instead, God provided a way for us to be completely forgiven and delivered from the power of sin, and also then given full access into the blessing of the Lord, into a relationship of God, and all of that was made possible through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you have attended one of our on-campuses and you have a workbook with you, you're going to want to get that handy because we're going to go through that in just a few moments. If you don't have a workbook, those are accessible online uh, with our church, and you can download one of those or just follow online. But before we get to the actual notes of the workbook, I want to set up something for us that will help us to build a framework so that we can renew our mind, we can understand, oh, this is what God did, and this was his intention, and then we can walk into the three truths that are in our workbook. So the first thing I want you to open to, I asked you to turn there, was Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to begin looking in verse number 1. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 1. Now, let me just tell you real quick, the author of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish people that have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're under some pretty trying times. There's persecution, it, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of need and lack, and, and they're, they're struggling not just in the faith, but they're struggling in their faith. And so the author of Hebrew it has been writing to encourage them and to focus them and bring them back to these fundamental, immovable truths that will steal them on the inside and will allow them to continue to trust God so God can do what he promised he would do. So Hebrews chapter 6, with all of that in mind, let's read. It says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ... Now, those two words, elementary principles, is actually one word in the Greek, and it's talking about the most fundamental, the most basic truths that begin to form an understanding of what Christ came to do in our lives. So we would say these are the ABCs of being a Christian, the ABCs of what it means to be saved and, and have a relationship with God. And I want you to notice, he says, therefore, leaving, he's not talking about completely leaving them behind and abandoning them. He's talking about don't get stuck. Let's keep moving forward. Don't get stuck in kindergarten and just keep going over to kindergarten stuff. He says, grab the kindergarten stuff, take it with you, and now build on that as we learn to understand more and more about serving God. And so he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ, he said, let's go on to perfection comes from the Greek word that means to maturity. It means to growing up in the principles or a graduation ceremony. He said, let's graduate from level to level to level. He says, not laying again the foundation, uh, not laying again the foundations of, and then he's going to list what these foundations are. So if we were to go back and say, you know, what's the primary thing that, that uh, we learn in kindergarten and in first grade, in second grade, in third grade, and so on and so forth, all the way through the elementary years, he was saying, listen, we're not going to go back and, and kind of redo all those classes in this loop. So we're perpetually in elementary school. He said, no, let, let's grab those foundations and let's make sure we have them and we have a good grasp on them and then let's move on to things that will help us to mature and to take what Christ has provided so we can live the life that he promised us he would do. Well, if we were to keep reading, he's going to lead six different foundations. I, I kind of like to look at it as six different grade levels. So it's you know grades one through six or kindergarten through fifth or sixth grade, he's going to list those topics that by now, if you've been serving the Lord, we should understand. If you just got saved, you're probably in the process. You're somewhere in, in that learning curve, and you're learning these things. But he's talking to this group of Christians. He says, listen, by now, we should all be out of elementary school. But let me just go over, go over the fundamentals again to get them fresh in your mind so you can think about them and say, oh yeah, I knew that. Oh yeah, that's right, I know that. Oh wait, what is that again? Maybe I need to get a refresher course so you can get them all fresh in your mind so we can move forward. And he's going to list six of them. For time's sake, we're just going to cover the first two and we're going to make sure we got a good handle on those so we could move forward in our teaching today. And so he says, not laying again the foundation of, and here's the first two he's going to mention. He says, repentance from dead works 
and of faith towards God. Now, if you read that last part of the the verse in the message translation, it would say, turning your back on salvation by self-help. That would be the first one. And the second one would be turning in trust towards God. So let's just pause that for a minute. And I'm going to give you two recent articles, just just some thoughts I have from reading two very, very recent articles uh, that will frame in why this is so relevant today and why this is really important. The first article is called Death of a Biblical Worldview in America. And it was written on May the 16th, right here in in 2022. And it was written by a man named Brody Carter from cbnnews.com. And, and he, he starts off and builds the premise. He says, according to a recent study done by Dr. George Barna at the Arizona Christian University of Cultural Resource Center, and then he begins to give information that's relevant uh, to what's happening in our culture and our society. Here's some things he says. He says that while 67% of American parents with preteens would identify themselves as Christians, now listen to this, only 2% of those same parents possess a biblical worldview. In other words, those particular parents, 67% of them said, no, we're Christians and, and we're raising our preteens. That's our elementary kids. We're raising them uh, as a Christian. But when you really get down to it, only 2% of them believe that the Bible is reliable and true and relevant for today. And, and, and the rest of them don't. The result of that, the vast majority of those people that say we're Christians and we're raising our kids that way, they don't believe what, uh, they don't believe in the God that the Bible describes. They don't believe in the God who thinks this way and who acts, who acts the way the Bible describes. They've made up their own version of the, of, of the God of the Bible. I'm not saying it's completely disconnected from the Bible, but it doesn't follow Bible truth and Bible principles. And, and he goes on to elaborate what caused this. And he's talking about this has happened, you know, over a, a, a number of a number of decades now. But we can zero it down. We can see it really accelerating. He said it comes from the secularization of, of news, the secularization of art, of entertainment, secularization that's taken over the public schools, and the secularization that's taken over the uh, governmental policies. They've now fostered a normative culture where, number one, wisdom and biblical truth has little room to grow. In other words, we can't even talk about it. We can't even introduce the Bible truths or the Bible topics as part of the discussion. So if we can't plant the seed, we can't grow. And number two, he says, talks about a cancel culture. The messaging has created a consumer-focused culture that is both free and limitless. He goes on then to quote Dr. Barna's concern, and he says, because of the rejection of biblical truth and the embracing of these sinless boundaries, it means that most parents of young children in America, this is according to the Bible standards now, most parents of, children, uh, of young children in America, if they were to die today, probably would not wind up in heaven. That's a really sobering, really indicting statement. And again, this is how they're raising their children. The same kind of twisted understanding, the same kind of very self-centered, very free thinking, very what's comfortable, what's my truth uh, approach to, to, to God and, and to the Bible, if they'll even look into God and the Bible at all. Well, that's one article. It's a very sobering article. You can go check it out. Here's the second one. Uh, a second article calls Preaching About Sin is Now Outdated. And this was on May the 22nd of this year, 2022. And this is written by Everett Piper of the WashingtonTimes.com. And he's referencing this same George Barna study when he says slightly over one third of American pastors now, we're not talking about parents anymore, we're graduating to talk about pastors, slightly more than one third of American pastors have a biblical worldview. And then he adds some of these comments. He says, rather than warning of the consequences of sin, it appears that many of our contemporary evangelical preachers and teachers are celebrating it. 
In other words, they're celebrating the perceived freedoms. They're celebrating the consumer right to choose what's right for me, what's my own standard, as opposed to taking the biblical concepts and being very clear, God says these are wrong. God says these are error. God says this is sinful behavior, sinful thinking that will lead us to destruction. Instead, they're finding a way to comfort people and finding a way to just inspire them to be happy and find the best version of you and yourself. All things that Paul talked about, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we'd see in these last days. People no, no longer wanting strong doctrine, but instead looking for celebratory, inspiration-driven, more philosophical kinds of teachings that would help them to just feel good about their Christianity rather than to grow in the principles of the Bible. And so he goes on and he says, he adds to this, he says, although the Bible clearly teaches that none of us are good. Now he's talking about good in and of ourselves. In and of our human nature, of our humanity, he said, although the Bible clearly teaches none of us are good, that all of us are broken, and that, we, and that individual sin is the most empirically proven aspect of all of Christian theology, today, 77% of self-described Christians, not talking about the pastors anymore, talking about their congregation members, 77% of self-described Christians would agree with the statement that people are basically good. Instead of understanding, oh no, no, the Bible says that people are inherently flawed, that, that sin, foolishness, is bound in the heart of a child, and from the mother's womb, as soon as we, as soon as we come out, we're desperately in need of a savior. We're desperately in need of redemption uh, just, just because of our flawed nature. He goes on and says, however... There's nothing in the Bible that affirms who we are, again, in our natural humanity. Without Christ, just, you know, you're a good person. Nothing in the Bible affirms who we are or that tells us to celebrate that we're born that way. This is the culture, uh, cancel culture mantra. These are the, 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 the social gospel talking points that we have today. He goes on and he concludes and he says, on the contrary, Christ himself tells us that unless we repent, we will spend an eternity in hell separated from God where there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he concludes with this, every one of us must be born again. That's the heartbeat of John 3.16. God's not trying to condemn anybody. He's not angry at anybody. But he so loved the world that he recognized the desperate situation we were in. And so he gave the most precious thing he had, his only begotten son, so that if we'll just recognize, if we'll believe, if we'll accept that, the Bible says that we don't have to perish, but we can instead have, receive, live in this everlasting life that God provides. And so we can see the Bible's teaching us one thing at a very fundamental level. I mean, these are the ABCs of being, becoming a Christian and of, of walking and living and following Christ. But the world, even the Christian world today, uh, so, so such a large percent is on a drift. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be alert so that like Jesus said in Matthew 24, when we see the signs uh, of the end of the times, we are not deceived. We, we don't let ourselves drift. We come back to the fundamental truths of the word of God, we plant ourselves firmly in what the Bible teaches and we allow, we allow God to be our, our foundation. So again, in Hebrews chapter six, verse one, he says, let me bring you back and remind you of these two fundamental basic truths. First of all, repentance from dead works. Let me just clarify a little bit. That means salvation, not based on your definition of what good is, nor based on your ability to live up to that particular standard of good, whatever you set, but coming back and realizing salvation's based solely on our recognizing that we're inherently flawed. Every single one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we're in desperate need of a Savior. So turning away from trying to save ourselves trying to be good enough that we can somehow earn the favor of God. And number two, then turn our faith towards God. In other words, our only hope 
is to turn and put our trust in God's provision, and that provision is understood and comes through our accepting what God promised and God said in his word. Both of these have to do with salvation. It's how we get saved, but it's also how we keep maturing, how we keep growing. They will never be obsolete. Those elementary principles, we don't leave them behind and never use them like our ABCs, and then we move on to forming words, and then we move on to forming sentences, and then we move on to to grammatically being accurate so that we can communicate better and better. We're always building on those fundamental things that we learned way back in elementary school, and that's exactly what the author of Hebrews saying. Now, let me give you a personal story about how this particular, these two concepts, this particular thing impacted my own personal life. Uh, For those of you that have been with me, I've said before, I grew up in a very Pentecostal home. My parents passionately loved God. Uh, We weren't always, you know, super understanding of how these principles of salvation and grace work, but boy, we were committed to God, and we had uh, just just an incredible work ethic in our home. That's what uh, my mom and daddy instilled in me, which, by the way, served me so well in so many different areas, but it also created in my spiritual life this works mentality where I was constantly on the pursuit of being good enough so that God would be proud of me, so that God would love me, so that God would bless me the way that the Bible said he would. And I'll be honest, I stayed that way all the way up until you know my, mid, my mid-20s when, uh, when I, I became married and I had my first little, little, little uh, boy, Brandon. And then even beyond that, Brandon's seven or eight years old, and, and Brandon uh, started playing hockey. And he was a natural on, on skates, man. He was so good, very instinctive. And, and as a dad, you know, I'm swelling, and I'm, I, I was kind of a sports, you know, enthusiast, and, and I, I could see greatness in my son, you know. And so, so I began to push him a little bit. Now, don't judge me. I wasn't one of those grandstand parents, you know, that are yelling, and, you know, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. But personally and privately, I was kind of trying to motivate him, even to the point of pushing him. And I was coaching him on the mechanics and, and, and trying to make sure that he was the best he could be and, you know, giving him these little elementary school, uh, you know, do, you, you got to get in there and just get your head right. Those kind of speeches, right? Definitely overboard, but, uh, but trying the best I could with all of my heart, you know, to be sincere and to be, to be a great dad here. And, but I remember it all came to a screeching halt one day. When we were on our, on our way to a game, and I'm kind of giving him that, you know, that speech, okay, you know, get your game face on, and, and don't forget this, and don't forget that, and I'll never forget, Brandon just looked at me uh, from the passenger seat of the car and said, hey, Dad, do you think it's okay if I just have fun today? And the moment he said that, it's like the Lord spoke to me, and the Lord said, you know, you're so focused on who you think Brandon can be that you're not even recognizing and enjoying and appreciate who he is now. And, and simultaneous to that understanding, I also understood that's exactly the way that I thought my heavenly father viewed me. That I was constantly having to work. That he wasn't celebrating who I was now. He was so focused on who, who he had created me to be and who I could be that it was another mechanical lesson and it was another performance issue and you fell short there and you fell short over here and you just got to do it better. Come on, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. You got to do your part. And I just felt constantly just, just pushed and measured and critiqued and, and all, but always realizing I'll never be able to, to, to live up to it. I I just can't, even if I can do it once, I can't do it consistently. I don't have it in me. And I'd completely lost sight of what the Heavenly Father really thought about me and how he really, really felt about me. And that was, he could see who he had created me to be. He was giving me everything that I needed to be that, but he was so passionately pleased and so passionately in love with me just the way I was and therefore was patient to work with me and let me grow and let me mature and learn uh, just, just so that I can get to where he wanted me to be. That was a revelation for me. I mean, that, that was completely a, a mind shift for me. And from that point on, I literally began to make a turn away from salvation through my own efforts, God's blessings because of my own performance. And I began to turn away from how I felt that God thought I was doing, and I began to go back to the Word of God and put my faith in what God's Word says about me, even 
on, on most occasions, if it was completely the opposite of what I felt. But yeah, but God said, but God promised, but the Bible says this is how God thinks, and this is how God feels, and this is how God responds, and so I'm going to believe what God said about himself more than I believe what I feel that God's probably thinking and saying and doing towards me. That, that was a shift. That was a part of my growth and maturity, but it was so, so important that I got there, and it was all based on repenting from dead works or from my own works mentality and turning towards God in faith. Now, if you can kind of get that framed in and just at least hold it here so you can keep it in your peripheral view, we want to look at Romans chapter 5, which is our theme scripture in your workbook, and we want to see what Paul's trying to show us because it's based on this fundamental understanding, these elementary principles. So in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse number two, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now again, the, he's telling us there's some fundamental principles we have to understand that will help us to get saved and then help us to grow up in Christ. And let me just kind of frame it in with one broad statement that we're going to see as we unpack this. Listen carefully. Salvation is a legal issue long before it's a relational issue. Salvation is a legal issue long before it's a relational issue. We're talking about God so loved the world, and so we get in this mentality of, of emotion and of relationship, which, by the way, we never want to detach from that. But we also recognize, I've said it here a couple of times before, I don't mean uh, in any way to be disrespectful or to marginalize you know, the sovereignness of God, but let me just say it this way. Our Heavenly Father is always our Father. He always loves us and thinks about us from a Father's point of view, but our Heavenly Father has a job, and His job is the judge over all the earth, the righteous judge. So it would be like if my earthly dad, with all of his love and commitment towards me, undyingly so, if he was also a judge and he was bound by legal issues. And this is the same thing that God is working with here. It, God so loved the world, then why didn't he just grab all of us and take us to heaven? Because as the judge of all the earth, the righteous, the holy, the perfect judge of all the earth, there are some legal issues that need to be, uh, that need to be addressed. And so salvation is addressing the legal issue of the fact that man has sinned and violated the holy law of God, and we need that to be cleared up before we can move on uh, and into freedom uh, with, with the relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so that's what Romans chapter 5 is talking about. We're going to walk through that uh, and, and look at a few different key phrases and words, and it's going to help you. But I want to get that framed in in your mind. Salvation is a legal issue before it's a relational issue, and you have to get your mind wrapped around that. Otherwise, you'll keep bringing salvation back to a relational issue. Well, you know, how, how did I feel, and how did he feel, and, and you know, did, how, how did we do in our relationship together, and we don't ever want to lose that. That's all, always, you know, the, the bigger issue, but you have to think about salvation and what God did and how God did it in terms of a legal process. I'll show you what I mean. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith. The word justified is a legal term. And it comes from this Greek word that means uh, to declare or to show by evidence that one is righteous or one is, uh, is free. One is not guilty. And it's, it's to do this through a legal process. And here, you're, you're looking at it through the lens of God, the eternal judge, having declared a sinner, by the way, who really committed the sin, but who's accepted the payment that Jesus made at the cross, the judge brings down his gavel and says, you are now declared innocent. Your sins have been paid for, case closed, you are free to go. And that's exactly what happened here. So listen, it's not that the sinner is actually sinless. Oh no, they committed this. And they've committed it ongoingly, but it's that 
they are declared by a legal uh, by a legal decision they are declared to now be free to now be found innocent because Jesus came and paid the penalty that closed that legal case that legal issue in fact you don't have to turn there but that and I'm, I won't even read uh, the verse but this is what the paraphrase you can go read it later of Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 Again, from a legal perspective, it says that God took all of the legal charges that were against every single one of us up in the courts of heaven, our our docket, our file that just says, these are all the things that we were accused of, that we were indicted of, that we actually did. We had their witnesses that says, yep, they actually did that. It says God took everything that was illegal in our file. And the Bible says when Jesus died, he nailed all of those to the cross. And he was literally saying from a legal standpoint that, listen, this is now case closed. Jesus paid for all of those illegalities, all of those crimes, all of those debt we have. He paid for all that, the cross, and God literally emptied our docket or emptied our file. If you were to go to the giant file clerk in heaven and pull your file, you'd open it up and it would be just clean white pages. It wouldn't be all list of everything we've ever done wrong, you know, since we were born and everything that we're still going to be doing wrong as we're living here on earth. It would be clean white pages and it would all say paid in full and it would give you the case number where Jesus Christ died on the cross and, 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 uh, and, and pay for our sins. So from a judge's point of view, from the legal court system in heaven's point of view, we've been justified or some scholars say now it's just as if I'd never sinned. Because of what Jesus did, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And and I can hear some of you thinking, but I don't feel justified. And I'll tell you why I don't feel justified, because I'm still struggling with some of this stuff. Of course you're still struggling. We're growing, we're maturing. And of course you don't feel justified. None of us do. But you have to understand the Bible truth that gives us this fundamental basis to stand on, and that is that the cross was the payment for sin, not just the sins you committed before you accepted Jesus as your Savior, but the sins you've committed since then and the sins you'll you'll commit all the way in the future. That Christ already paid for all of that, and we've got a paid in full clod. And listen, you have to turn away from your own opinion, from your own feeling, from your own perspective about what God, the great judge of the earth, and our heavenly Father, you have to turn away from what your opinion is and what you have to do to earn favor, and you have to turn towards what God said, and God said you are justified. Let me read a couple of verses. I can't teach on these, but they'll support this, and you can go through and study even more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering, he, that's Jesus, perfected forever. That means he settled the issue forever. Case was closed. He settled it forever. Listen, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, we're still in process of living up to what Jesus already settled in a court case, and the heavenly Father judge said, yep, case closed. Jesus already took care of this. That's Hebrews 10, 14. Because of that, listen to 1 John 1, 9, writing to Christians, by the way. He says, if we confess our sins, he, that's Jesus, is faithful and just. Now listen, it's important you hear that. Faithful and just are two legal terms. He will not deviate from what the standard is, and he will make sure that justice is served every time. Faithful and just. Not what we think. If we'll confess our sins, he's loving, and he's merciful, and he's tenderhearted. He's all those things, by the way. But this whole issue of sin and salvation is a legal issue. And because Jesus already settled it, 1 John 1, 9 says, anytime that you and I mess up, if we'll just be honest about that, if we'll be upfront, if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and listen to this and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, once you understand salvation is a legal issue, and that we have to turn towards, uh, away from our own perspective and our own approach to try and earning God's favor, and we have to turn towards what God's word says and putting our faith, if that's what the Bible says, that's how it works, even though our feelings are saying, that can't be true, that can't be true. It's absolutely the truth. 
It'll never be anything else. This has already been settled in the courts of heaven. Once we realize that, then three truths really begin uh, to, to come into full view, and we can live in them. And this is your workbook now. So pick up your workbook. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 again says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing you need to know. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God. And that word peace is really important because it describes a perfect harmony between individuals. It's talking about a relationship that we don't have any walls, we don't have any resentment, we're not holding anger or any bitterness or unforgiveness towards each other. It's talking about complete rest, complete relaxation. You can exhale when you're around that other person's presence because you know everything's right. In other words, you know God is not mad at you. God is not mad at you, not even in the slightest. Now, this is what Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says. And again, I'm just going to read through it. It kind of speaks for itself, given the framework we've already set. It says, and through him, that's Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's a legal issue. Verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Verse 22, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. In other words, again, from a legal standpoint, because Jesus fully paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, and, and future, when you put your faith in, in, uh, in him, God considers us to be in a relationship or included in this class action settlement that Jesus already took care of, and it was closed and decided. And we're the beneficiaries of this class action settlement. So when God looks at us, and the Bible says, you, you hear people say, or, or, or when, you, you know, when the Bible says that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. More specifically what that means, it doesn't mean God's confused in identity. And he thinks everyone just, just, you know, everyone's Jesus running around. It means when God sees Jesus, more specifically, he sees the price that Jesus paid he remembers the class action suit that was taken care of there, and God then looks at us as if we had never sinned. God's not mad. He sees us as justified. He says, we're at peace because Jesus already took care of that, and now you have room to grow. And so this is exactly what God's saying. So the first one is important to understand. You're at peace with God. Here's number two. Number two, that you are righteous. And this is not measuring your behavior. This is not putting unrealistic expectations on you at this stage of your growth and your maturity. This is, again, a legal declaration. You're in right standing. You are righteous. This is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, again, not justified because of your own behavior or your own works, <clears throat> justified by faith. Now, we go over to 2 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to that church, and in, in chapter 5, verse 21, he elaborates on this when he says, for he made him who knew no sin, that was Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, Jesus was here. He was sinless. He, he never did anything, never had any of these sinful thoughts or any of these motivations that especially, and, and, and didn't act on any of them, certainly. And we did all of that stuff. And God says, but I'm going to accept the price that Jesus paid to pay for what you did. And literally God traded places with us. He was righteous. We were unrighteous. But God says, okay, I'm going to put him over here and he'll pay for your, for your faults. And I'm going to put you over here and you get to receive the benefits for what how Jesus lived. And that's been how, how we're seen ever since. The class action suit was settled and we've been declared right or righteous because of what Jesus did. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter eight and says, once you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, verse one says, there is therefore now no condemnation, none. 
God's not slamming the gavel down ever and saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when it says no condemnation, none. Zilch, zero, nada. I mean, never going to happen that God's going to slam the legal uh, gavel down and say, you're guilty. We're not. We've been justified just as if we'd never sinned. We're justified before God. But Pastor Gil, I'm, I'm still sinning. I know. But those are now family business matters. That's where your heavenly father comes alongside and Hebrews chapter 12 says, whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And so your heavenly father says, hey, listen, no longer a legal issue. Jesus took care of that, but it's definitely still a family issue. I don't want you to behave like that. I don't want you to live like that. Let me help you to grow and move you along. And so we're in two different categories. The God that so loves us, the heavenly father who gave his own son, who, who did everything to bring us into his family, that father now is doing everything he can to grow and mature and help us to be everything that, that he knows that, that, that he's created us to be. But it's not a condemnation. It's not a pushing away from God in isolation or in judgment. Instead, it's a conviction or a convincing, hey, you're better than this. Hey, I, I, I have a way that can give you a better life and let me, let me mature and grow you and mentor you in that. That's exactly what the Bible's saying. And, and I'll just give you one more. We already, said, uh, one, uh, we already read it one time, but let me read it again with a little different emphasis. 1 John 1, 9 again says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. Remember, that's a legal qualification to forgive us of all our sins. And listen to this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, when our heart's right and we come, from, come to God and we confess something that we know we're messing up, no doubt there's a lot of other areas that we're still not perfect, we're still not mature, we're messing up, we just don't know we're messing up because we haven't grown up enough to know that. But when we come and we're willing to soften our heart and, and confess and say, Lord, I messed up here again, not only does God forgive us of that sin, but the price that Jesus paid just wraps over everything. And once again, we're washed and we're brought back into that full just as if I'd never sinned because Jesus' penalty was enough. Well, listen, this is important because once you realize that, you are, uh, that you're righteous before God, that you have peace with God, that God not only is not mad at you, but he's really excited to bless you and to help you and to grow, then here's the third truth we're going to look at as we close today. You are now in God's grace. You are now in God's grace. It's still right here in Romans chapter 5. We've looked at verse 1. We're going to move on to verse 2. Listen to this. It says, therefore, again, having been justified by faith, not your behavior. It's a legal term. Case was closed. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom also, everybody say also. So there's more. It's like the, those, uh, those infomercials. But wait, there's more. And that's exactly what this group scripture saying as if forgiveness and God's grace and Jesus's class action suit isn't enough. It says, but wait, there's more. It says also we have access by faith into his grace. Now grace is such an incredible uh, arena. It, it, it literally covers every promise and every blessing that God has for us, starting in the Old Testament, fulfilled and really elaborated on in the New Testament. In fact, somebody came up with, uh, used the word grace as an acronym to give us a fuller understanding. And here's how they did it. They said that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches, all of God's riches available to us at Christ's expense because he paid for it. And it's talking about all of those unearnable, undeserved, uh, unlimited blessings and favor and, 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 and benefits and, uh, and, and additives that, that Christ brought that we have because we're children of, of the heavenly father, we get all of these wonderful things. And it's really describing this divine undercurrent not always visible on the surface of our life, but God's working in deep places. God's working behind the scenes to give favor and to orchestrate and arrange our pathway and our life so that we can walk out. Psalm 37 says, we can walk out the steps of a good man that have been preordained, that have been written out before we ever take our first step. 
Psalm 139 talks about this. You know me. You know what I'm thinking, what I'm saying. You know what I'm going to do before I do it. You knew every one of my steps to the end of my life before I was even born out of my mother's womb. And this is exactly what the Bible is saying. This divine undercurrent begins to flow. Everlasting life begins to flow. And it brings to our life everything that we need both intrinsic, internal, and external, measurable, resource, everything that we need that enables us to overcome any obstacle and to live a victorious life in every area as we grow and we mature as a son and a daughter of God. Romans 5.2 again says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, again, Think legal term. It says you're already standing in this. You already have access. You're not going to get access the more you learn to behave and, and the more you learn to do the good things and not do the bad things. He says you're already standing in this. And he says, notice he goes on and he says, and we rejoice. In other words, you can already get excited. You can already start praising the Lord, start thanking him in advance. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word hope there, we're going to study this in the next little mini study, and it's the Greek word elpis, and it means an expectation. In other words, it's like you have a brochure of some place you're going or of something you've purchased, and you, you're not there at the destination yet, you're not holding the product, but you have a brochure, and you can see the pictures and the description, and you are so excited because you know exactly what to expect. And when it gets there, it should be, it better be exactly like the brochure promised. And the Bible says we can get excited already because we have access and we're already standing in all the things that God's promised us, all the grace that's available to the point that we can get excited right now before it ever happens in an expectation, in a hope of the glory of God. And the glory of God is not just talking about, you know, some mystical feeling that we have in a worship service. The glory of God is the demonstration of God doing what he promised he would do so that you and other people can say, wow, God actually did it. I mean, he actually did it. We didn't just feel warm and fuzzy. He actually pulled off what he promised he would pull off. Let me read you one more scripture, and this is our kind of the cherry on the icing on the cake we've been baking today. It's in the same chapter, Romans chapter 5, but we're scrolling down to verse number 17, and he starts off and he says, four. Now, building off of the idea of verses 1 and 2, and he keeps elaborating, he, he says, for, or all, because everything that you just read in, in the top 16 verses of Romans 5, because all that's true, he says, for, if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, and he's talking about Adam. Way back there, if creation was perfect and the garden was a paradise and Adam and Eve were the ideal couple with the most intimate relationship and all that's true, then sin came in and everything began to tumble and fall apart and it's been doing that ever since. He said, for if by one man's offense, death, not just physical death, but the erosion of every dream, of every destiny, of everything that ideally should have been wonderful, but all of a sudden it just began to decay and erode and it just began to die uh, in, in terms of expectation. He said, if, if one man's offense, Adam and Eve, if one man's offense, uh, because of that destruction reigned through that one man, listen to this, he says more. Some translations say, how much more? So if you can understand all, all of the consequences and the negative stuff that's all around us because of what one man started off, Adam, if you can understand that, he said, hold that feeling now, hold that realization how one person can start something off and it, it, can, it can affect everybody, hold on to that. And he comes over and he says, how much more? Those who receive the abundance of grace, we just read that in verses 1 and 2, and the gift of righteousness, we just read that in verses 1 and 2, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. In other words, if you can see how bad the world is and how crazy and chaotic it is and, and how hard it is for you to you know, reach your goals and reach your destination, and all that's because one man way back when made a wrong decision and everything started spiraling. Now, don't put yourself as innocent because we've all sinned too, right? So it's not just like, you know, stupid Adam. And it's not that. He started it off, but we prove that we're no better than he was. 
because we've all sinned too. But if one man can affect that, he said, how much more can this next man, Jesus, how much more can he turn it around and move it the other direction? Understanding that by legal decision, that you and I have received an abundance of God's grace, access into all of God's provision and blessing, and the gift of righteousness, and the right, the right standing, legally speaking, to access that grace, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, not because we're, 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 we have no sin, no faults, no weakness in our life. It's not that. It's because Jesus won a class action suit, a double jeopardy clause is put in place. I can't be tried for the same sin twice. I've already been tried in the class action suit with Jesus, and I was found guilty, but Jesus paid for it completely. I'm an innocent man where the, head, where the courts of heaven are concerned. My behavior would say otherwise. But the legal decision says, nope, the Heavenly Father now will take responsibility and he'll move us on. Not denying sin. Not saying sin doesn't exist, do whatever you want. Oh, no, no, sin will separate us from our ability to live in the fullness of God. But if we've genuinely accepted Jesus, if we've turned away from our own measurements, our own uh, definition of good and living those standards, if we've turned to faith in God and say, I want your standards now. And I'm going to live by what you said and how you think and how, how, how you direct me. He says, when we do that, everything changes the same way it changed for the worse. It now goes right back and changes for the better through this one Jesus Christ. To the point, last comment, he says that you and I will reign in life. And that word reign in the Greek is literally the word that would describe a king who's reigning on his throne. We're not taking God's place. We're not deity, but it means it puts you back in charge of your life again. Life is not leading you around. You're not just trying to keep up and somehow, you know, work the system enough where you can skate by or you can find the loopholes. It means you're in charge. It means you can make decisions now. You, you can chart your, your destiny based on where God's leading you and what God's promised. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to be you know, uh, 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 limited or moved backwards by what's happening in the world. We can trust the word of a living God. We can trust the decision of the righteous judge of the earth. And we can trust the faithfulness and the love of a heavenly father to do everything he promised us to do and allow us to live the life that he wants us to live. Hey, there's a lot of other scriptures in your workbook and I hope you'll jump in and not only study that but discuss it uh, with those around you. We're out of time today. God bless you. Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the love you had for us and for as a legal judge of the earth for the decision that was made in a class action suit with Jesus. Lord, we accept your decision and we accept all of the benefits and the privileges that Jesus gave so much to purchase for us. Holy Spirit, now come and renew our thinking, change our perspective, grow and mature us so that we're no longer uh, we're no longer trying to measure up in our dead works or our dead efforts, but we are turning towards faith in God. We're trusting what the Bible says, and we're experiencing everything you promised you would do in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.